0: Good morning, friends, and welcome to Awaken. On this, the last Sunday in August where we would normally be talking about cheese curds, the state fair, and fall football. Of course, we're talking about none of those things, which I don't know how you feel about that. I would say I have mixed feelings. That's true. But uh, either way, however you find yourself here and uh, in whatever state you find yourself, I'm glad you're here. And I hope and I pray that today, you hear a word from the living God that uh, you get what you need today. A couple of things before we kind of jump in as it relates to community life. Uh, One thing is there are some of you who have joined us since March and COVID and we've never seen your face. We know you're out there, but we've never met you. So if that happens to be you or if you're newer to Awaken, Uh, You know, patios at breweries are opening, sort of, and there are some coffee shops with patios open. If you would like to get a beverage of your choice and get to know uh, one of the staff at Awaken, we'd love to, to meet you. So email Jenna or I. Our emails are on the website, and we'd love to connect with you. Uh, related to that, if, um, if you're a part of Awaken and you're looking for fall plans and things that are happening, ways to connect with the community, um, those are coming. We're going to publish them shortly after Labor Day. So be on the lookout, Bible studies, book studies, learning labs, ways to connect virtually and in person as appropriate. Uh, those are forthcoming if you are in a life group and you've thought like, I wonder if Micah would ever come to a life group and you know be a part of our group. The answer is yes, if it works with my schedule. So if you're in a life group and you want a special guest for the evening and we can work it out, I would love to see you. Uh, just ways we're trying to stay connected as a community. So. Uh, and last but not least, Mel is leading the Artist Mingle this Thursday, the 3rd of September at 7 p.m. So artists and creative folks at Awaken gather uh, on the lawn to connect, uh, talk about being an artist and creating and making new things in the world. So if that's you, please feel free to note that. And as as relates to Mel, fresh off of over 100 miles of walking uh, with a group of people who were... Uh, It was called Walk the Walk in Solidarity with African-Americans. They started, gosh, I don't even know, somewhere south of D.C. and over 100 miles over 12 days have walked to Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington, 50th anniversary, which just happened. So um, Mel just did that and we're excited to have her back. So uh, if you know her or message her, um, she'd be grateful to hear from you. Um, But I guess as we get started this morning, I I, want to connect what Mel was doing and and just say that I think it would be somewhat disingenuous for us to uh, pretend like the world is fine when it's really not for a lot of us. Um, Yet another person um, has been harmed nearly fatally um, in an interaction with the police. And so I I guess I want to say a couple of things. Um, I want to recognize the continued pain and struggle of African Americans in America. And Uh, There is just more pain and struggle, and um, we want to name that and say, uh, to the degree that we can, we lament and we continue to pray, God, would you bring justice and reform and um, change us, change me um, first. I think I also want to say that I know, I I think, I'm I'm imagining that it's also very difficult to be in law enforcement right now. Uh, I know there are cops in our community who Love Jesus and want to serve and love and protect their communities to the best of their ability. And I can't imagine what it's like being in law enforcement right now. Uh, so uh, I want to hold those folks as well. Uh, there are parents out there and teachers in our community who have had to change everything to offer things online this this school year. And uh, I don't even I can't even imagine what that is like um, for for students and parents and teachers who are involved in in trying to the educational process. Uh, Not to mention, it's an election, and goodness gracious, me. Uh, I have anxiety. I'm not an anxious person, but I have anxiety about November and just the tone of our discourse in our country. Um, I'm sad, honestly. And there's a pandemic. So, last but not least, there's COVID 19. So, I want to begin with a prayer this morning. And it's a prayer that I found this last week in a a meditation by Richard Rohr. And I just found it to be uh, compassionate and kind and gentle. And so I want to begin there. uh, And then Dan and the crew will lead us in song. So uh, pray with me. Oh, great love. Thank you for living and loving in us and through us. May all that we do flow from our deep connection with you and all beings. Help us become a community that vulnerably shares each other's burdens and the weight of glory. Listen to our hearts' longings for the healing of our world, all the things we've mentioned and all the things we haven't. Knowing you are hearing us better than we are speaking. We offer these prayers in all of the holy names of God. Amen.
1: The sun will rise, the sun will rise, bringing life to the earth as it springs. From the ground The sun will rise The sun will rise Won't you dry all your tears Lay your burdens down Won't you dry all your tears Lay your burdens down The sun will rise Bring life to the earth As it springs from the ground The sun will rise The sun will rise Won't you dry all your tears Lay your burdens down Won't you dry all your tears Lay your burdens down Won't you dry all your tears? Lay your burdens down Won't you dry all your tears? Where my strength comes from I lift my eyes up to the hills This my evening song Where my help comes from This is the gravity of love Just as the moon follows the sun You're all around me You're holding This is the hope of every land. Just as the universe expands, your love is reaching. You're holding everything. Our help come, Lord, we cry how long we lift our eyes up to the hills, and even as we run, hope is chasing us. This is the gravity of love, just as the moon Heart. And with all of these suns, I know I am not alone. This is the gravity of love, just as the moon. is the hope of every land. Just as the universe expands, your love is reaching. You're holding everything. This is the gravity of love. Just as the
2: Everyone, my name is Mandy Taylor. I'm the Kids Community Director. It's really good to be back. I was gone for a couple weeks, and I'm glad to be back up here. And like Micah said, school is on the horizon. That's most of our thoughts these days. Um, for some of you, actually, school has started. I'm following a few of you on Facebook, and I'm shocked you're back at it. So I hope your first week was good. And I just want kids and parents to know that I am thinking about you, and I'm praying for this transition. School looks really different, and it's maybe not ideal, but I'm hoping that we can find some peace in knowing um, and remembering that God is present in the day-to-day and through all the changes. And actually, speaking of God's presence, that's what we're talking about today. Psalm 139, written by David, is all about God's presence. And while Micah's gonna dive much deeper into it, I want to give a few main points for our kids to remember and some questions also for you to continue bringing up at home and to keep the conversation going. So if you have Bibles, kids, I highly encourage you to get them out. You're going to want it for this, to follow through. So if you don't have them and you're sitting on your living room floor, go grab them really quick. Hit pause. When you get your Bibles, I want you to open to Psalm 139. All right, let's look. Go ahead and read it if you want. Otherwise, we'll kind of read it as we go. But key point number one that I want to share is God is interested in us. Look at verse one. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. The word searched actually comes from the Hebrew word "chakar," which means to examine intimately. So what do you spend your time examining? When you examine something really well, what does that mean? Or why do you do it? I know when I spend time examining something, it means that I really care and I really wanna learn about it and know more about it. I'm interested in it. So that brings me to point number two, God knows everything about us. Because God examines us or searches us, God knows us. God knows us. So look at the first six verses of Psalm 139. I wanna know, there's a little bit of school. How many words can you find that mean something similar to the word no? So in school language, what synonyms of no can you find in the first six verses of Psalm 139? Take some time to look at that. I see different words for no. So now we might have different translations. Some of you might see knows, comprehends, understands, acquaints himself, or In this translation specifically, it has perceive, discern, familiar. How does it make you feel that God knows everything about you? I'd be very curious to hear these answers, but you can just share them with your parents. How does it make you feel that God knows everything about you? Key point number three, look at verses 7 to 12. They tell us that God's presence is everywhere. There is no place that God isn't. Think about where your favorite place to be is when you just want to be alone. Maybe it's a place you go when you're sad, or maybe you just need some space, some quiet to calm down, or just to be, or to read, or rest. Maybe it's outside, maybe it's inside, maybe it's your room. I know when I was little, I used to hide behind the couch, but between the wall, we had a table full of plants behind there, and I would just sneak right in. I fit just right And nobody knew where I was. Well, these verses change that, right? They say that God is God is there, even in the darkness. Darkness might mean actual darkness, or it might mean a place that's just away from others, and it doesn't have to be dark. David writes here saying that God is even there. All that to say we can't hide from God. Think of a time that you wanted to be alone. Does it bring you comfort knowing that God is always there? Or does that make you uncomfortable? Point number four, God knows us now and he knew us before we were born. Verses 13 through 16 talk about how he knew us in our mother's womb. He also says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. I love remembering this, especially when I'm not feeling that great about myself. Maybe you feel that way, maybe you don't. Maybe you wished you looked differently and acted differently, or maybe you're just fine. But either way, these verses are a good reminder that God knows everything about me and he made me to his liking and he wants good for me. He wants good for you. He created us to do good. The last point is number five. God can't stop thinking about us. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. God can't stop thinking about us. It'd be impossible to even count the number of times that God thinks about us. Verse 18 says that it'd be like counting the grains of sand at the seashore. Can you imagine that? We can't even comprehend how much he thinks about us. And I love how David calls that precious. In the beginning of 17, I agree that God thinking about me feels really precious. So I'm going to do a quick review of those five points in Psalm 139. God is interested in us. God knows everything about us. God's presence is everywhere. God knows us and he knew us before we were born. And God can't stop thinking about us. God knows our worries our imaginations, our memories, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our aspirations, our feelings, our plans, and everything in between. No matter what the circumstance or whether you think you deserve it or not, God's presence is there and can guide you through the good and the bad that each day or each month or each year brings. So I have a couple challenges before I end with this book. I'm wondering if you or your family can pick at least one verse from Psalm 139 this week to memorize. Just read it every day and I think you'll naturally memorize it. And if you can do that, I'd love to hear about it and I can send you a special prize. I've got some things stored up. My other challenge, might be a little harder, maybe for older kids, is to read through the Psalm a few times and write down five statements that you know to be true about God. So for example, one might be, no matter where I am, God will be with me. Can you find five things you know to be true and then read through those a few times and maybe even notice how those make you feel? And do you believe them? And if you don't believe them, why not? And you can talk about that with someone you really love and trust. I would love to end with this book called God is Always With Me. When I'm done, the band is going to sing our blessing song over each of you and know that we're thinking about each of you this week. God is Always With Me by Dandy Daly McCall and illustrated by C. Bisco. If I climb, climb, climb up the tallest tree, even way up high, God is watching me. If I swim down, down in the ocean blue, deep as I can go, God is down there too. If I find a cave and I hide in there, I can't hide from God. God is everywhere. If I run away, far as I can go, I won't run from God. God will always know. If a storm kicks up and the lights go out, God can hear my prayer. I won't need to shout. When I'm on my bike and I take a fall, God will pick me up because he sees it all. If I'm at my friends on an overnight, God is right there too. He's just out of sight. If I have to switch to a school that's new, I won't be alone. God will be there too. I don't like it much when I'm last in line, but since God's there too, guess I'll be just fine. If I'm in the car on a boring ride, God can share my seat. He'll be by my side. If I sail to earth in a parachute, God would come along just to troubleshoot. If I went to Mars at the speed of light, God would go there too for the long, long flight. God goes everywhere I could ever go. And I'll tell you why. Because he loves me so
1: God give you eyes to see all that is good all that is good The courage for anything may you be strong may you be strong May God give you ears to hear his loving voice loving voice
0: All right, friends, Psalm 139, Um, kids out there, if you're still with us, I tell you what, you're lucky. Um, I don't even remember my kids' community pastor when I was a kid, but I guarantee you they were not as cool as Mandy Taylor, so count your chick no, count your blessings. Don't count your chickens before they hatch and count your blessings, thanks to Bing Crosby. Uh, Okay, Psalm 139, we're just going to read three verses to start, so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're there, and if you can stand, please do. The psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, in some translations, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we spend a little time thinking about this psalm, I pray that, uh, man, I hope and, and, and pray that you would do and say and be uh, the things that you long to do and say and be for us. Uh, I, I'm, I've been grateful for this week and sitting with this teaching and this psalm and the ways in which you've already spoken to me through it. And so I just ask that you would keep doing that for Awaken this morning. Uh, in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the people said together, amen. Um, Now, it may seem odd to you that we've chosen Psalm 139, one of the most beloved psalms of the entire Bible, to do a lost in translation passage, but remember, we're in the wisdom literature here this year, this summer, and um, the, you know, the author goes on to say, after the verses we just read, that you created me in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's lovely, it's beautiful, it's compassionate, it's kind, it's like, you know, unicorns and and bubblegum, but... The author in the verses we read actually says something very uh, uh, provocative and touches a question of the ages, which is about heaven and hell. Uh, And what philosopher or theologian or pastor hasn't spent decades, years, eons of their life thinking about these sort of existential questions related to what happens when we die? And what is heaven like? And is hell real? And, uh, you know, more than that, for us this morning, for Lost in Translation, is the psalmist making the claim that God exists in heaven, which makes sense, but also that God, uh, for those that find themselves in hell, if hell exists, that God will be there too? Like, does God get mail at both addresses? (laughs) That's the short version of my sermon. Uh, So that's what I want to do today. I want to talk a little bit about heaven and hell. Hell. And I want to I do two things. That's four. I want to do two things. First, I want to I look at, like, uh, the, the, the discussion, the dialogue over the course of history, like, about heaven and hell. And I'm going to do that in, like, 10 minutes. So it's going to be very, very cursory. But then I want to spend a little bit more time asking, like, what is the psalmist saying when he says, in the King James, it says, "'If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there.'" Because I think both of these questions matter. What we think about heaven and hell in the afterlife informs how we show up in the world. And what we've been taught about the heaven and hell in the afterlife informs what we think about God. So that really matters. But then also, I think equally, or maybe even more, it matters what the psalmist is saying. And I wanna get to that. So first, Um, heaven and hell in the Bible over a bit of time and in order to dive into this discussion it's important to say we're going to have to look at Judaism and Christianity. Seems obvious but I'll say it out loud. Um, I'm a Christian. This is a church that is in the Christian tradition but Psalms is in the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible uh, is Jewish. It is is connected to ancient Judaism and current Judaism. So what the ancient Jews thought about heaven and hell informs what the psalmist would have thought about heaven or hell, or actually the afterlife. That'll make sense in a minute. Um, And that doesn't only influence us, but it is directly connected to what Christians have been taught about heaven and hell and the afterlife. So I'm going to paint in very broad brushstrokes. I want to break up sort of three sections of time before 586 B.C., after 586 BC and then after platonic or greek influence as it relates to heaven and hell okay put your thinking caps on friends here we go um, first pre 586 BC for those that don't know 586 BC is when the babylonians march into jerusalem they destroy the temple so what is the what is the ancient jewish understanding of the afterlife before that moment because that moment and and the moments after it really changed the conversation around the afterlife first in that period of time, it's really important to note that ancient Jews would never have separated the body and the soul, which means that any belief or, or uh, um, claim that the soul lives beyond the body and after it's dead somewhere is anachronistic. What I mean by that is this belief that the soul is separate or can be separated from the body and might live on after the body is dead, f- f- like, develops after or over time after Judaism and Christianity meet Plato and Greek philosophy, more on that later. But to take that belief, which is, f- develops far later in time, and bring it back into the psalm and sort of impose it on the psalm is a category mistake. It's called anachronism, and it's a, it's a mistake of time. The ancient Jewish writer who wrote the psalm would have never considered the body and the soul being separated. So first that. Second, prior to the temple being destroyed in 586, you would be hard-pressed to find any coherent thought in Jewish life around the afterlife. the Tanakh, which is also the Hebrew Bible, which is also Nevim, uh, or excuse me, Torah, Nevim, Ketuvim, which is also Torah, prophets, writings, also known as the Old Testament. That's a lot to understand, but the Old Testament uh, is notoriously nondescript about the afterlife. they really, you kind of have to make verses say something about a preconceived idea that you would bring to the text. There are no complete theological ideas or uh, like uh, concrete claims that you can say or make from the Old Testament. It is frustratingly nondescript on the afterlife. There are two passages that people somehow or sometimes think about. One is for Samuel where uh, Saul has an encounter with the woman of Endor. She uh, like resurrects Samuel from the dead. Uh, Some people would say that brings back Samuel's spirit but those who understand that ancient Jews would never separate the soul and the body would say that's an anachronism. There's no way that would have ever happened. I mean, how long do we think that's going to go on, friends? Okay, there we go. It stopped. We're just going to keep going. So, uh... where was I? Oh, yeah, the woman of Endor. Some would say uh, it's, it's Samuel's spirit that's brought back to talk to Saul. And then others would say, no, an ancient Jew would never think that the spirit would somehow be brought back. So they would argue that Samuel is resurrected from the dead for a brief moment, which he is not happy about. I mean, who would be? Uh, the other is Daniel chapter 12, where uh, it says many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So there's some kind of reference to resurrection, and so some will uh, to eternal life, and others to uh, everlasting abhorrence. So those are kind of two, but they're they're really sort of nondescript. Again, um, now you might be saying, "Well, Micah, what about sheol?" Ah, I, I've got you. There is a word in Hebrew, sheol. And that is connected to a conversation about the afterlife. It shows up in our passage. It's what gets translated, if I make my bed in the depths, it's what translates in the King James, if I go down to hell. But here's the thing, that doesn't get translated hell until far later in the conversation. For the first large portion of Jewish and Christian history, that word gets translated the pit, the grave, the depths, the dark, the deep, the forgotten place, it's not till much later when we translate it into English that it gets translated hell. And what's fascinating is many would argue that that word has no connection to like judgment or anything penal or negative. In fact, Ecclesiastes and Job seem to think that everybody who dies has some kind of interaction with Sheol, whether you lived a righteous life or an unrighteous life. The point being, In the ancient Jewish world, prior to the temple being destroyed, there is no concept of heaven or hell as we understand it, and really there's no coherent view about the afterlife at all. What's of import or what's of value is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets according to Jesus. So that's pre-586. Post-586, what changes? Remember, the temple gets destroyed. This is the culmination of captivity and exile. The Babylonians march in. They destroy the most sacred place in all of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this was a lot of things for Israel, but it was for sure a theological crisis. Like, how are the people of God under exile, enslaved, dying, unable to worship the God who they claim to, to, to follow? And so you enter the prophets into this sort of scene. The prophets Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, and others begin to speak about a messianic figure who would come and bring about restoration and uh, uh, redemption and a return to Zion and God sort of recreating and redeeming Israel. Uh, and and um, Israel's exile and the reason they're in exile is related to their sin and, or disobedience and God's judgment. Now, about 200 years before Jesus comes on the scene, you have entered into the the conversation this idea of the resurrection of the dead. Lots of theories about where it comes from and how it gets there, but it's there. And it enters about a little before Jesus comes on the scene. So there's this idea that there will be a bodily resurrection that God will vanquish evil and the enemies of God, Uh, both physical and spiritual, and that a a reign of peace or an era of peace will be brought about by the Messiah, and there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead. And if you think about it, this is basically what Jesus preaches when he comes on the scene. He talks about a kingdom of God, an era, a rule and reign of God, where God will be all and in all and, and on the throne of the world again, you know, doing what God does. Uh, one author named Bart Ehrman, who, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he did an interview on NPR. He wrote a book on the history of heaven and hell in Judaism and Christianity, so it's, it was a great source for me this week. He says this, Jesus, his main teaching is that the kingdom of God was coming. People today, when they read the phrase kingdom of God, think he's talking about heaven, the place that your soul goes when you die. But Jesus isn't talking about heaven. He doesn't believe that. He's a Jew. He doesn't believe in the separation of the soul and the body. He doesn't think the soul is going to live on in heaven. He thinks there's going to be uh, a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. God will destroy the forces of evil. He will raise the dead. And those who have been on God's side, especially those who follow Jesus' teaching, will enter a new kingdom here on earth. That's basically Jesus' message. This is connected to the question the rich young ruler asked Jesus when he says, What must I do to inherit olam haba, the age to come when the Messiah will come and resurrect those who are in God? That's the question he's asking. You can make a pretty strong argument that up to and even after Jesus, there is still no understanding of heaven and hell as eternal places of reward and punishment where the soul goes after we die. That comes far later. It's not until Judaism and then the earliest of christianity meets plato and greeks who convert to christianity that we get any sense of the separation of the soul and the body and the soul living on in eternity the immortality of the soul being punished or rewarded in heaven or in hell which brings me to the last stop in our survey platonic influence so you have the kingdom of god which everyone was hoping and waiting for. The prophets are talking about it, the Messiah, they're, they're waiting for this person to come and bring about God's restoration and God's healing. Even Paul thinks that this is going to happen in his lifetime, that Jesus was the first fruits of what God would do for everyone, a bodily resurrection of the dead for those who are with God. If you read Paul closely, he thinks it's going to happen in his lifetime. And you can watch him wrestle with it over his letters to where he's like, this is coming, it's imminent, and other apostles say the same thing. And then it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. And so finally he's like, well, if it doesn't happen while I'm here, to be with Christ is, or to die is gain, to be, whatever it is. Um, oh, man. I, I'm, I've lost it. Anybody help me out here? To, die, uh, to be with Christ, to die is gain, something like that. Anyways, it's not in my notes, so put it in your notes, Micah. Um, Paul's wrestling with this in his teachings. And so what happens when all these people are waiting for the resurrection and it doesn't happen? They're, they're wondering, like, okay, these people are dead and there will be a bodily resurrection at some point. But what happens to all the people who are in, in the middle of that? Couple that with Greek and Platonic Christians. Uh, Platonic-influenced Greeks who are converting into Christianity, who believe that the soul will live on forever, that the soul and the body can be separated, and you have the makings for what you and I have been taught our whole lives as normal and natural about heaven and hell, that the soul will somehow be separated from the body and will live on, being punished or rewarded forever in heaven or in hell. You can imagine why you get things like purgatory, Gehenna, lakes of fire, um uh uh roads of of gold streets of gold where, where the streets have no name no wait that's you too but you can imagine where all these things start growing and and the beginnings of what many of us have been taught our whole lives as the only way to think about heaven and hell and i guess i want to just stop and say you might be wondering michael why did you tell us all this information about the history of heaven and hell Because what you and I have been told as normal and natural for most of our lives is a very new understanding of the afterlife in heaven and hell. So when we read a psalm like 139 and the author says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And someone says, well, see, there you go. God lives in both heaven and hell. And what they mean by that is God somehow lives in this disembodied spiritual state somewhere in an eternal place called heaven, and somehow at the same time in a disembodied state also lives in hell. Or as C.S. Lewis says, it's the same place experienced in two different ways. You can say to that person, sure about that. Why? Because you now know that that is a very new idea, and that the ancient Jews, the writer who wrote this, probably would not have agreed with you on that one. There's a lot to think about, and there's a lot of implications, because what we think about heaven and hell in the afterlife, I think it matters a lot. It shapes and it influences what we think about God and how we show up. And listen, like, I, I've been, I-, 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 I grew up thinking that the whole point of the story of Christianity, of the Bible, was about heaven and hell. I'm coming to think that that might not be true, that there may be a different message or a different way to understand what gets translated as heaven and hell, which is connected to a whole long history of what people have thought about what happens after we die. So you can say to that person, I'm not so sure about that. And also you can say, I don't really think that's what the psalmist is getting at because you've heard what I'm about to say now which is what I wanna spend the rest of my time on. What is the psalmist saying in the 139th Psalm? And in order to get to that, context, context, context. If you've been around Awaken long enough, you know that you can make the Bible say anything and people do make the Bible say anything they want. But to understand what this person was intending when they wrote it, you have to understand the context in which you find the verse. So verses one to seven, verses eight through like 13 and 13 to 17, just very briefly. The first six verses are about the knowledge of God. The psalmist is like, listen, you search me. You know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You know when I go. You know when I leave, when I come back. You know what I say before I say it. You're before me. You're behind me. You seem to be everywhere. And then verse seven is a transition, and it's a question. Where can I go that is not in your presence? And the psalmist answers his own question. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, if I go to the highest heights, you are there. If I go to the lowest depths, you're there. If I sail to the edges of the ocean, you are there. There is no place, even darkness cannot hide because dark, what is darkness to you? Verse 13, this transition, the psalmist speaks about the intimate knowledge and the presence of God. You knit me together. You formed me in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was even there. You know everything about me, your thoughts. They are, they are kind and they are numerous as the sand is on the seashore. Here's the thing. This psalm is not about where God gets the mail. This psalm is not about the ontological nature of God or even like cosmology and what heaven and hell is like or who is there or if God is there. I would argue this is a psalm about the experience of a person with the divine and living God, the inescapable and incomprehensible love of God. The psalmist is bearing witness to his experience with the presence and the love of this God, reminding us that what we do know right here and right now is there is no escaping the presence of the living God. You're swimming in it, you're breathing it right now. It's all around us of every moment of every day, even in a pandemic, even amidst systemic and institutional racism, even amidst a crazy political season, Amidst I didn't mention wildfires and earthquakes, a world that seems to be falling apart at the seams, the psalmist says, Ah, don't believe that lie. This is about the faithfulness of God's character and God's presence. It's about the cosmic Christ at work all the time, everywhere, holding together the very fabric of the universe and you and me, which is why John can say in John 1. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Nothing is made without him. In him is life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, has not, will not overcome it. This is why Jesus can say in John 5 that... The Christ incarnate says, my father is always working and so am I. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 3 that Christ is all and is in all and you and I are hidden with God in Christ. As we close this morning, a few implications and encouragements in light of this information. Number one, you don't have to waste time thinking about or trying to figure out all the things you don't know. (laughs) What do I mean by that? As it relates to Lost in Translation and why we picked this first, I'll say it's important for us to recognize that there's a whole lot we don't know about the afterlife. There's a whole lot we don't know about what happens when you die. To my knowledge, no one's come back yet to tell us about it. The the disciples asked Jesus, what will happen when the kingdom will come and God will return? And Jesus says, you know what? I don't even know that. Only the Father knows. I had this one youth group student When I was a a senior high youth pastor, and this person was just hell-bent, no pun intended, on me preaching about Daniel and the apocalyptic literature and revelation and when the end times were going to happen and all. She was just so excited about this. And I said, I love your passion. (laughs) It's the Oreo. But... Like, I love your passion. I love that you're excited about the Bible. I love that, like, you want to know these things. But, like, listen, Jesus Christ himself doesn't know these things. So why do you think that I'm going to have anything good to say about what the end times are going to be like and what the afterlife is going to be like and what heaven and hell are going to be like? Or if there is either one of those, like, we think about them. The only thing that seems to be arguable from Scripture is that In Christ, God has made a definitive statement about death and evil, and that in the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has vanquished, defeated the worst that the enemy can offer, and that is death. And that God will do for Christ, or God will do for all of creation, what God did for Jesus at Easter, and that, my friends, is resurrection. That's about the only thing that I think you can argue, like, till the cows come home. Beyond that, I'm going to just give you a pass To say, you don't really have, if you want to, fine, that's cool. But you don't have to spend your time, like, getting to the bottom of this one. (laughs) Because nobody has in 2,000 some years of church history. So, like, take a deep breath. There's some other things that you can worry about. Like, I don't know, following this Jesus into the things that he did. Which is like feeding the homeless and caring for the sick and the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Those are the things we can say God wants us to be doing. When will Jesus come back? The afterlife, pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial? Who gives a rip? (laughs) So you're free from that if you want to be. Number two, you don't need to run or push this God away. Run from or push this God away. I've been a pastor for 10 years at this church, and I know from many of you stories that you have told me about the significant amount of time you have spent running away from or pushing away These versions or understandings of God, Jesus, the Bible, or the church that have been weaponized and toxic. And I think if the psalmist were here this morning, he would want so desperately to say to you, You do not have to be afraid of God. Whatever harmed you, whatever caused death and non life that was in the name of Jesus or the church or Christianity. You do not have to, you don't have to run from me. You don't have to push away. In fact, the opposite is true. This God that the psalmist is speaking about, this God is for you and with you and near you and behind you and before you and around you and within you. And this God that has been made known to us in Jesus the Christ, incarnate, God of God, light of light, fully God, fully human. So I think if if I could be so bold, the psalmist would say, receive that today. You don't have to keep doing this to God. You can put your your guard down because God is not in the business of harming people. So receive that God today. Rest in that God today. Breathe in that God today. Find peace and life, hope and love, mercy and forgiveness, healing and restoration in that God today. And for those of you that have received that and are receiving that, as your pastor, I would just say to you, Your only job. And you've heard me say this before and you'll probably hear me say it again. After I'm long gone, I hope and pray that you still... Do you remember that old fart, Pastor Micah? He would always say, demonstrate and announce. God does not need you to defend God. God does not need you to to defend their existence or their love or their... You don't have to do that. Demonstrate by your life, that which you have experienced from the living God. The things that the psalmist is speaking so intimately and personally, like, God, I know you to be these things. Demonstrate that with your life. So be out there fighting for justice and and change in systems and the things that you think Jesus would care about. Go be about those things and do those things. Demonstrate those things with your life. And when given the opportunity, announce that you have found love, joy, hope, peace, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, love, uh, you know, unfailing and incomprehensible acceptance and inclusion in the God made known to us in Jesus. That's all. Just announce that. My wife and I, Laura, many of you know her, we went on a little date night the other night. We did a little staycation. We were had some plans, they got changed. Grandma was coming over to watch the kids. We're like, let's cash that one in. So we went on a little staycation. We stayed up on Capitol Hill and we went out for dinner. First time we'd been to like a fine dining experience since COVID. It was like, I did, like I had three left hands. I didn't even know what to do with myself. I was so excited. We went to a little place called Hyacinth. It's on Grand, right next to Bruegers Burials, where I usually go on Sunday mornings before church. I'm all Katie Wampus here, friends. It's across from the North Face that's closed and the old Ann Taylor. It's right there. It's Hyacinth. It's like Fine Italian dining, small plates. I'm telling you guys, we had one course. It's the kind of place where the four courses are listed, but there are no prices. You know what I mean? Where people like me walk in and we feel a little anxious. We're like, "Oh my gosh, how much money are we about to spend?" I loved every second of that meal. The bartender was great. He made a free drink. He's like, "Try this," and I'm like, "You know me, man." The food was insanely good. It was like whoever made the duck thing with polenta and the broth with the cherries. If you know me and you're a part of my life, you've probably heard me say, you should go to Hyacinth because it is worth every penny. The only way people are going to be convinced about this God that you say you follow is if you have those kinds of experiences with this God. And you can say from personal experience, I was a mess headed in the wrong direction and I found or God found me and my life changed. I was an angry, bitter, resentful person and I met the Christ. And I think that hope and forgiveness and mercy are better ways to live and I'm trying to be that kind of person. See, what... Word of mouth is the best story. It's the most convincing one. So to those of you who have received and are receiving this God, I would just say to you, demonstrate and announce. That's your only job. So when you have tasted and seen that something is good, you can't help but announce it to those around you. So to the church gathered this morning, the God of the 139th Psalm and the inescapable love of this God, I would just say to you once again, it's yours. It is on. Uh, it's on display. It is available. And for those of you who have been harmed, hurt, um, where things in, in God's name have been weaponized and become toxic, I just want to say you can you can say no to those things. You can leave those things, and you don't have to be afraid of the God who is in the 139th Psalm because that divine being is really quite beautiful. The invitation to you this morning is to receive them. Father, Mother, Christ, and Holy Spirit to stop running from or denying whatever false version and representation that you have learned or heard from or experienced. And know that the one that is around you, before you, behind you, within you, and for you is yours today. And then, demonstrate to the world, even in a pandemic, even amidst racism and polarized parties, become peacemakers and repairers of the breaches. The places that are broken in the name of and empowered by the spirit of the Christ made known to us in Jesus. It's really quite simple. Heaven and hell, the afterlife, Psalm 139. That is all I have to say on that. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to a time of silence. My friend Josie is going to read Psalm 139. And I hope that it's a, a meditative experience for you to just listen to the way the psalmist speaks about the divine. And then Dan's gonna lead us in a song that I just, I haven't woke up in a really long time with an idea for a sermon. And I woke up on Monday morning and I was like, 7 a.m., <gasps> it's St. Patrick. St. Patrick's hymn, Christ Be All Around Me. So this song is basically a, uh, from St. Patrick, who if you've done any research on a great story, and uh, essentially says it is the Christ that is all around us, within us, before us, to my left and to my right, in my going, in my sleeping, in my waking. It's Christ all around me, and that is present and here and available to you. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Pray with me. God, as we move into a time of silence, it's my hope and my prayer that by your spirit's presence in my friends' lives, uh, wherever they are right now, that they would uh, experience you in this moment as kind and gentle and compassionate, as light, as love, as warmth. And that if there be any darkness, if there be any shadow, if there be any harm that has been done in your name or by your people or in, uh, by your church, that those things would, would fall away like the scales on eyes as, as the, the metaphor in scripture and that what would be left is you, only you. So anything that I've said that is not congruent with who you are, I pray that it would be forgotten. But that everything that is, that is, like that hits the tuning fork of your, the, your essence, that it would remain and that it would grow in us, it would find us, it would shape us and that we would become more and more like this Jesus that we follow. So speak to us, Holy Spirit. Uh, Speak to us through your psalm. And as we move towards communion, ready our hearts to receive uh, the body and blood, I pray.
3: Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you.
1: Christ be all around me Above and below me Before and behind me In every eye that sees me Christ be all around me As I go The hand of God my defense by my side as a rest breath of god fall upon bring me peace bring
0: night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you whenever you eat of it remember me don't forget there'll be a lot of competing ideas and people who claim things in my name but remember who I was and what I did and how I loved in the same way he took a cup and he blessed it and he said this is my blood shed for you Whenever you drink of it, remember this is... Well, do it in remembrance of me and, and know this is a new covenant written in my blood that the worst death, the worst that the enemy and uh, can offer, which is death, has been beaten. And so when you drink of it, remember. Uh, this table that we come to is the table of the church. Nope, it's not the table of the church. It's the table of the Lord. <laughs> Sometimes the church tries to make it its table, but it's the table of the Lord, and it's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. Those who, uh, so if you have a little bit of faith or you have a lot of faith, maybe just a shred of faith, come. If you've been here often or you haven't been here in a long time or ever before, uh, if you've tried to follow and failed, these are the gifts of God for the people of God, so come, Um, eat and drink, not because I or the church invite you, but because Christ, Christ who's all around, invites you to come and be fed. So as you take the bread, wherever you are and whoever you're with, I invite you to hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat my friend, be sustained and remember And in the same way as you take the cup I invite you to hear these words the blood of Christ shed for you take and drink and be sustained and remember friends as you go to whatever it is you're going to <clears throat> my hope and prayer is that you uh, where I began this morning which was um, my prayer all this week God would you, life and words of life, moments of uh, encouragement and restoration, rebuilding, renewal for the people who hear these words today. And so I hope and pray that you feel um, that God was ready for you and that we were ready for you and we hosted and set a table for you to hear and experience this God that the psalmist writes so beautifully about. And I hope and pray that If you don't already, you come to know this God like that. Where you can say, with intimate knowledge, God's kindness and compassion and love towards you. That you know it full well, down to the tips of your toes. So, know that you are being sent, blessed by God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the people said together, amen, amen, and amen. See you next week, friends. facebook.com backslash awaken community